Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. Carl Rove, big welcome back to you. How are you doing, my friend? And good day. I'm doing great. Now, if it's Hemmer Time, does that mean you do the dance? wearing the gold pants and stuff. I, I will do that with, yeah, we'll, we'll add the music later on that. I mean, that's a sight to see, actually, Carl. Yeah, I bet it is. Yeah, I remember, you know, you one time uh, cutting a move at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Oh, God. At the lead table. Oh, God. One of the, one of the but, darkest moments of my life. They suckered you, know? you into that moment. Well, they, they didn't sucker <laughs> me into it. I, I, I was with the president, with President Bush at the pre-gathering uh, at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and the evening entertainment came in, and I ended up talking to one of them, and I think he was surprised that I didn't have a tail and horns, so we <laughs> sort of hit it off. But then you may remember these guys uh, did some uh, after-dinner skit entertainment, and yes. so they looked for volunteers from the crowd, and they drew uh, they drew me out of the crowd deliberately and made me dance. Well, I, I was in the audience, and I thought you were um – no, you were you were a good sport. That's how I look, saw it. A good, look, I wasn't a good sport until I decided I'd better be a good sport. But I'm Norwegian, and we don't dance. So having <laughs> out there, you know, break the moves like to a rap song is like ridiculous because I have no rhythm whatsoever, and it showed. But anyway, it's I mean, all it's all good. Listen, we're a hundred days away, and I wanted to talk to you exclusively, uh, give or take a hundred days. Right by the time this goes out, would you agree with that? Yeah, I thought your Wall Street Journal piece last week was excellent. So, for those who were not lucky to witness the mastery of your prose, size it up for us. How do you see the strangest campaign play out, the strangest campaign of our lifetimes play out? Well, as I said in the in the column, I mean, COVID-19 has transferred so many things in our society. I mean, the way that we work the way that our kids get educated, the way whether or not we travel, just a simple human interactions. Who would have thought a year ago we'd be all going to the grocery store and masking up and deliberately trying to keep our carts six feet away from anybody else? And politics hasn't escaped it. And it starts with the national conventions. Actually, that's the most visible uh, form of the change, but uh, and they're coming up, but it's not the most important one. But it's it's you know, we used to have these, you and I, from 2008 on, have spent time together at both the Republican and Democratic conventions, and they're like Woodstock with these gigantic, you know, crowds of people who, you know, party enthusiasts, delegates, alternates, party leaders, donors, journalists, strap hangers, people who are curious. Every interest group in the world is represented at them, from, you know, the from people who are both sides of the gun question to, you know, re- weird and exotic and bizarre causes. And, and like 50,000 people, for example, were expected to descend on Milwaukee for the Democratic Convention and a slightly larger crowd for the Republican Convention in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And instead, both of them, you know, the, the, the Democrats have downsized their in-portion 
portion of the convention, in-person portion, to only the essential committee business and everything else, all the speeches, all the entertainment, all the evening program activity is all virtual. And the Republicans, mm-hmm. they, got, they had to move from Charlotte because the, the governor said, I'm not willing to give you permission to fill up the arena, the veterans arena in downtown Charlotte uh, for the acceptance speech. So they're, they're going to Jacksonville and how they're going to pull this all together is going to be a real challenge because historically, the conventions have been the biggest moment that each of the candidates have before the debates. 34 million people tuned in to watch Hillary Clinton's uh, acceptance speech and 35 million watched Donald Trump's. Mm. And how you pull that off without the sort of all the drama and the momentum and the pageantry of what has become the traditional modern political convention is going to be really tough. Yeah, very interesting. I thought the State of the Union address this year was very interesting. You really did not know what to expect. I just thought that they pulled out one character of American life after another. I thought it was very effective, probably unlike I had ever seen before for a State of the Union address. So who's to say what level of creativity, be it on behalf of the DNC or the RNC, who can be more effective at that presentation? Yeah, that's going to be a big issue for both parties. I mean, uh, Democrats are going to have uh, have to figure out how to go about, uh, Democrats and Republicans both how to figure out how to showcase their candidate, because that's a critical moment. I mean, that's the moment at which a lot of people sort of wake up. Yeah, we're paying attention to politics. We're, we're sort of, you know, making opinions. But that's the moment at which we hear it all, in which a candidate stands up and says, here are my values. Here are my principles. Here's what I want to do. And here's how I contrast it with what that other person wants to do. And for the incumbent, it's important for them to show, really important for them to show that they got a second act because they can't simply say, vote for me. I've done a good job. Uh, reelect me. You got to go out there and lay out, uh, you know, I've done a good job. Yeah, but I got a second act in me. And here's how that second act is better than what you're being promised on the other side. Mm. I think about the production often, and what I think about a convention is I think the crowd shots are yeah. kind of, oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's what's been ingrained in our brains ever since, what, FDR showed up at the first one in 1932 in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, let me just lay it out for our listeners. DNC plans four days as of today in Milwaukee, largely virtual, as you point out. That begins August 17th. The RNC is planning for three days in Jacksonville, and I, I know they're still pushing for more people and to be uh, a combination of indoor, outdoor. And I think the RNC is still working its, I guess they both are, right? Trying to work through what it will be for that week. Yeah, and I think they have to have official meetings in Charlotte because what happens is they, they party uh, rules, I think, are such that, that they have, that they aren't Republican National Committee members have voted to hold the convention in Charlotte. And so they have to have at least some of the official business there. Okay, so uh, in a moment, I'm going to circle back on the last part of your piece from a week ago and talk about what happens after the conventions, which is the campaign of 60 plus days. Um, But before I get there, Joe Biden gave a speech earlier this week. Um, Prior to that, we saw him two weeks ago, went 89 days without a press conference. Um, last week, I think he drove two and a half hours from his home in Wilmington, Delaware, made a speech, went to his childhood home, got back in his black SUV, went back to his home without taking a single question from a national reporter. I think he might have done two or three local interviews there. Is, is that sustainable, Carl? 
Well, I think they're counting on it being sustainable, but I don't think it can be. Um, of course, it, maybe it's going to be sustainable if the national press says, well, we really, you know, we, we, we dislike Trump so much that we really don't care that we don't get a chance to ask him quite tough questions. But um, I think it would ill prepare him for the debates. I think it is better for, for him to find a moment where he starts being more visible and more available so that people get more accustomed to him. Otherwise, it raises the likelihood that at the debates, people say, well, you know what, I haven't really heard all that much from him thus far. And uh, you know, he, his performance in the debate leaves me wondering, is he up to the job? So let me be clear. It's been advantageous for him to have, to be off the stage and to have the spotlight hot and, and, and consistent on Donald Trump since March, March, April, May, June, July. Think about that. Uh, all that time it's been Trump, 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 Trump. Mm-hmm. And, and he's, and he, Biden has benefited from being on the sideline. But at some point, people are going to say, well, who is that guy? You know, I got a general view. He's sort of he's Uncle Joe. He served in the Obama administration as vice president, been around a long while. Seems like an affable sort. But I think there's going to come a point where people say, I need to know more about him. And I think that moment, frankly, is, is he, he better he better find a way to be more available uh, sooner rather than later. Now, he's going to try to avoid tough questions from the press because you know, I watch these softball interviews he has with local TV stations, and he runs into difficulty even there. But uh, if the national press said to him, let me give you an example. Um, he, uh, he had a speech on, on his version of the Green New Deal. Well, no member of the press could, could say to him, have you, have you figured out how many jobs that's going to cost in Pennsylvania in the fracking revolution? What about all those chemical, un- you know, members of the chemical workers union who are going to lose their jobs? What about all those people at refineries around the country who are going to lose their jobs? And how realistic is it to, is to think that in 15 years, within 15 years, we can shut down every coal-fired, every oil-fired, and most important of all, every natural gas-fired uh, power plant in America without having a major disruption of our economy? Those gas, natural gas-powered plants can run for decades, and you want to shut every one of them down within 15 years. You know, nobody could ask him that question when he gave that speech because he didn't accept questions and his staff was able just to say. Uh, yeah, in- interesting. So there, there will come a moment when that question is asked. Oh, yeah. um, the question is when. W- one more oh. question on Biden and then let me move to the Trump team. Um, the, the first speech he gave, I, Carl, I think it was four weeks ago. And again, I think it was the suburbs of Philadelphia. And I'm, I'm not going to mention this individual's name. I won't tell you whether it's a he or she, but uh, they're very well connected within Democratic circles. I know you talk to a lot of people, but this individual told me on the phone after the speech, quote, he got through it and seemed to think that this was a big sigh of relief. Now, is that your experience when you talk to those, let's say, on the other side of the political aisle? Yeah, look, I... I and I want to be fair to him. I, they're all for him. They desperately want him to win. I think a lot of Democrats that I talk to uh, think that he has lost some steps and that he was never a great campaigner to begin with and that he is, you know, gotten, hasn't gotten better. It's gotten worse. So they worry about him because, you know, he's getting up there and he clearly in his interviews it falls back on stock phrases. And when those aren't good enough, he just sort of stops and he, and he hears what he wants to hear. There's the, there was this podcast with a 
sort of a, a, a Bernie guy recently. This is the one that got him into trouble. The Bernie guy is talking to him about mili- surplus military equipment that's given over to local police departments. And Biden says, well, I don't think they need it because they show up with an armed Humvee and they look like the military and they make themselves the enemy of the people. And I'm all I'm, a, I'm opposed to that, which, you know, it's got trouble enough in there. You can make the argument that there are points like in the Minneapolis riots. I, I wanted those police to be in something other than a squad car. Uh, and, and they do need vests and they do need helmets and they do need the surplus military gear that allows them to confront some of these violent rioters. But that, that OK, fine. We can have an argument about that. But then the, the moderator says, but don't you think that we need to redirect some of the funds? To me, the key word is but. He's, he's like changing the subject. I want to, you talked about that. I want to talk about defunding the police. So, but don't you think that we ought to redirect that money elsewhere? And to which Biden says, absolutely, yes. Now, I think Biden is still talking about the surplus military equipment, but, the, but he says, absolutely. We not only need to redirect it, but we need to condition it. But I think he's still, I mean, I, I'm looking at that saying, the moderator wanted to change subjects and Biden rather than say, well, let me say this, uh, you know, I, there's, I want to differentiate between the surplus military equipment, which I think we need to end them and defunding the military. I'm not in favor of defunding the military. Now he said de- that he's opposed to defunding the military, but he gave a piece of tape to the, to, to the Trump campaign that has him saying absolutely yes. So if so he's, he's, out, he's got to clarify that then. Oh, well he has, and he's gone out and said, I'm against, you know, defunding the police. But my point is, is if he's in the regular back and forth with the press, how many days are we going to see that where they talk about one subject and they want to change to something else? And he thinks they're talking about something, you know, what that they were talking about before and doesn't change subjects with them and gets himself into trouble. And I see that in some of these local TV interviews. And the fact that they're only being broadcast in, you know, Miami, for example, limits the amount of exposure that he has, particularly since the press is not going to pick up on that habit unless it unless it's visible and nationally and they they and they can't avoid talking I guess that, I mean just the way you frame that make that makes the debates all that much more important oh yeah that, do you think they have three yes they, do, they will have okay. three. the commission has, cho- has set the dates if either candidate pulls out of those de- out of those debates and says I'm, I only want one or I only want two or I'm not doing that one or I got angry at the first debate so I'm not doing the second they will lose the election. Because the American people have, rightly or wrongly, uh, become accustomed to, since 1984, multiple debates. We, the last time we had one debate was in 1980. President Jimmy Carter got away with saying, I only want to debate that guy, Ronald Reagan, one time. But, but since then, we've had three debates, and it's become part of you know, the warp and weave of presidential campaigns. And either candidate, Biden or Trump, who says, I ain't going, going is going to suffer um, with mm. the American Let's talk about the Trump campaign now. You know, and I, I think we can pretty much admit that he was relying on rallies to help carry him through the fall. I don't know if that happens or what form they happen. Maybe you fly to an airport hangar and do a speech and fly back out again. He did that in Atlanta last week at a UPS event, never left the airport. Uh, the briefings came back to the White House this week on COVID. Um, let's address that first. Is that a good thing? Uh, I think, yes, but it depends upon the format. The, the, the briefing started off good. What got Trump into trouble? He was undisciplined and got off script and took the reporter's questions. That briefing is for the purpose of laying out a, a message. And, 
and there ought to be questions, but the president is not required to answer the questions. The president can come out there and say, here's the message I want to deliver, and I'm turning it over to the health experts, and they'll take your questions, and depart. It was, remember, it's when he gets sort of free-flowing there, and somebody says, well, what about this, or what about that? And he says, well, what about bleach, or what about this, or what about that? Part of being the president is to figure out what your explicit message is and deliver that message, and don't feel obligated particularly to show up in the White House briefing room and just subject yourself to whatever questions want to be thrown yeah. your way. F- fair uh, point. Uh, meanwhile, violence in American cities, it's a real issue. Um, yep. I, I don't know how voters see it. Do they see a law and order president taking charge or do they see a hands-off former vice president who's willing to let it play out? Um, I, I wrote a column about this a couple of weeks ago. I was taken with the Reuters uh, Ipsos poll which said that uh, 73% of the American people supported the protests that took place in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd. And 79% of the American people felt that the violence that accompanied some of those protests undermined the legitimate peaceful protests themselves. We have a big majority in the country that thinks two things. One is we saw what happened in in the streets of Minneapolis to George Floyd and that our hearts go out to the to the to he and his family, and it and and we believe that the protests that took place in the aftermath of that are justified. And we don't think any of the violence that we saw, the destruction of private businesses, the attacks on public uh, uh, public buildings, the removal of statutes, the mindless violence uh, conducted against uh, persons, none of that is justified. That's the majority in the country. They hold those two simultaneous thoughts. And they, they, that means between three quarters and 80% of Americans agreed on those two propositions. And we have two candidates who can only come to an agreement with one part of that. President Trump says, I agree with the people who say the rioting and the violence is unjustified and must stop. And Joe Biden says, I agree with the Americans who are upset at what they saw in the streets of Minneapolis and have taken to the streets in order to protest police violence against people of color. Now, the winner is the person who can talk to both. Now, ironically, the only one who has done that in a comprehensive way is Donald Trump with a speech that unfortunately nobody saw. Saturday after George Floyd was killed, the president was in Florida for the launch of the SpaceX uh, rocket and gave the opening 10 minutes of his speech at the flight center were devoted to George Floyd. Just over half of that 10 minutes was devoted to explaining why he felt that the anger and the grief and the distress that we saw in the country was justified in response to George Floyd and and promising to be an advocate and an ally and a friend of anyone seeking justice. And just less than half of his speech was devoted to saying, to decrying the violence and saying nothing. You dishonor George Floyd's memory and the cause of of, of, of ending racist practices by the police by engaging in violence against people and persons and property. And, and it was great, but he, nobody saw it because it was Saturday afternoon and we were all trying to get out of the house and get a bit of fresh air. Yeah. And he hasn't repeated it, but think about it. Neither one of these men is capable of standing up and saying, I know that three quarters to 80% of you agree with two propositions. And so do I. Hmm. Could be effective. You're listening to Hammer Time with Carl Rove. Our conversation continues after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage 
all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Back with Carl Rove, two more questions. Ted Cruz was doing an interview, and what he talked about, Carl, was the blue-collar vote in the Midwest moving away from Democrats and toward President Trump. And then he talked about suburban voters in states like Georgia, Arizona, and Texas as either up for grabs or having moved away from the Republican Party. It seemed like an understandable yet simplistic way to look at the country. Do you see it that way? Well, I think there's a lot uh, in there. Um, the the, the blue-collar Midwesterners, particularly in, in Ohio, uh, have, and maybe Western Pennsylvania, have moved away from their historic allegiance to the Democratic Party. You take those counties uh, on the west side of the Ohio River in eastern Ohio, and there are 20-point swings from 2012 to 2016. And similarly, a lot of counties in western Pennsylvania, which incidentally, ironically enough, that entire region is the beneficiary of the fracking revolution. There are natural gas wells coming in in those places that are renewing manufacturing activities and and lowering uh, utility costs, making it a a great place to locate your facility and make things. Now, and so I think that's happened, and that's happening. And he's right. They're suburbanites. I, I, I wouldn't say I'd say that they become less Republican. Like, look, look at Senator Cruz, for example. He wins re-election by a couple of points. And the Republican governor of Texas wins re-election by double digits. How come? Because uh, Governor Abbott had appeal in those suburbs. And and the suburbs said, you know, Ted Cruz tried to shut down the government. He never explained to me, A, how he was going to do it or B, what the good purpose of it was. It, it seemed to me to be a, a fool's errand. So I'm not for him. But I am for my Republican governor. And oh, incidentally, I'm also voting for the Republican ticket down. Think about this. The Republican candidate for land commissioner and railroad commissioner and comptroller get more votes, significantly more votes than the Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate, who's at the top of the ticket, the incumbent junior member from Texas, Ted Cruz. So I think Ted's put his finger on it because he saw it in his own election. That suburban suburbanites who were traditionally Republicans said, I'm, I'm not voting for that guy because I don't like him, even though he's got a Republican uh, label on him. But I am voting for the Republican for land commissioner uh, or railroad commission, which actually regulates the oil and gas industry or the Republican controller, because, you know what, I'm a Republican, but I don't like that guy. So they're becoming more selective they, rather than sort of being loyal up and down the ticket. They're starting to be more selective, at least in Texas. Yeah. Do you buy into the notion that is sometimes talked about maybe on the street, maybe in chat rooms, maybe over the internet, maybe among friends or family members, that some think that there is an effort to keep the economy where it is until you get past the election, to sort of slow things down and go into this temporary phase that we've been experiencing for the last four months? Do, do you buy well, that notion? Well, I, I think there are people who advocate that we slow down on reopening the economy, that we make it, uh, that we do things like, you know, the, this idea that we're going to give people $2,400 more a month, more, well, actually, it's more than that, for unemployment in, above and beyond what they would normally get um, because, well, they need it and it's going to be a long time before they can get back to their jobs. Well, that means that you can make roughly $53,000 a year in many states and not work. 
And I had an interesting experience. My wife and I decided we were going to get the heck out of, out of Austin, Texas. We just were stir crazy. So we, we took all the precautions, masks and everything, and flew to Montana for to stay in a tent. And the guy who picked us up at the airport, young kid from Missoula, just graduated from college, worked at this particular resort. And he said, you know, it was a tough, a tough because he said I was on unemployment. And with the extra money, I was making far more on unemployment than on my job and they were calling me back to work. And he said, I made a decision that I would take, a, in essence, a cut in pay by, by going off unemployment and going back to my job. But he said, I want to start a career. And I just, I think it's a lot better for me if I'm working than if I'm lying at home, you know, playing games on the, on the game console and waiting for my next, you know, check to arrive from, on the, from the unemployment office. And good for him for having character because that money comes from somebody. It comes from people who are working, it comes from people who are striving and succeeding, and it ought to be there for people who actually need it. And if he's got his employer saying, I want you to come back to work uh, and because we got we got business coming in the door and we need you, so much better for him to do that and, and than to say, you know what, I'm just going to depend on everybody else to pick up my uh, I hope you told him he made the right decision. <laughs> I did. I'll tell you what I did is I also gave him a big tip because <laughs> nice. I wanted to say, welcome back to work and and thanks for taking good care of us. And thanks for having character. I like that. But, but, but I, so I'm not going to ascribe to people that they want to do that so that they can do it, you know, callously, cynically think it will help them win an election. But I think people have got to be careful about thinking about doing things that discourage people from working. There is a vitality and, a, and a, an integrity and a value in working. We are better people when we are working at something than we are by just simply lazing around. And if you've got a chance to work, by God, have the dignity of mm-hmm. work and be able to take care of yourself rather than rely upon everybody else to take care of you if the opportunity arises. That way we've got enough money as a society that we can truly take care of the people who are down on their luck or have insurmountable challenges at that moment in their life that need our help. Yeah, I call it the loafing life. <laughs> Don't be a part of it. Which yeah. leads me to the ultimate question here that I referred to earlier in our conversation. And that is, we're past the conventions now, Carl, okay, for the sake of this conversation. We are now past Labor Day weekend. So now you've got a, you got a countdown on, right? You're less than, fewer than 60 days from the national election. What do these campaigns look like during these COVID times? Well, I had you know the big rallies are gone. There may be there may be an occasional rally, but the idea of four or five rallies a day, you know, in different parts of the country, we're going from hangar to hangar, hopscotching across battleground states and battleground region. That's out. Bus tours. We're not going to be getting on a bus and driving around Ohio. Um, I think it's going to be more set piece speeches like the one that. Uh, Biden delivered uh, last Tuesday, uh, outlining his $2 trillion Green New Deal. I think there are going to be more releases of position papers, uh, like, like Biden did last week. Um, but it's, that's, it's, it, it's going to require them to, to plan everything around what is the message that we want to set for that day, and what is the message that we want to have dominate that period, and how can we go about doing it. I think it is going to require more surrogates to hit local television and newspapers. We're going to go back to an old-fashioned kind of campaign where we try and get the governor of a state or a local member of Congress to echo our message in front of local media. Um, but that requires a lot of, of, uh, of planning and discipline. 
we're going to see what I call, what Daniel Borston, the famous librarian of Congress, called pseudo events. We saw this in Texas mm. last week. Biden is running it ran, ran an ad in Texas. I think that he spent less than a hundred thousand dollars, which in a state with twenty eight million people is not much money. <laughs> uh, but 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 the but the idea of putting an ad on on Texas television was to dominate the day by having the media say, oh, Biden thinks he might be able to win a state that the Democrats last won in 1976. And of course, a lot of reporters bid on it because they were desperate for news. Now, the the big advantage is for Biden is that, that this turn from conventional campaigning is going to kill the opportunity for journalists to regularly confront him on the trail with difficult questions. Uh, he'll avoid the wear and tear of the campaign, but he'll also avoid the scrutiny uh, than he would normally get uh, because uh, you know the t- chances for him to say something unscripted and off off tune crazy uh, are are reduced. But this could also help President Trump if he realizes that he's got the biggest mega he's got a bigger megaphone than anybody else because he's the president and he's got Air Force One and he's got what the Theodore Roosevelt called the bully pulpit and he is stronger politically when he sets aside the role of being a candidate and acts as the chief executive of the United States. So he wants campaign rallies. And I understand why. He goes there and he bathes in the enthusiasm of twenty or 25,000 people screaming their heads off at him. But he ought to figure out how he can, tra- he can take presidential events and substitute them for campaign events and have an impact on the campaign. Um, you know, he too will be able to avoid questions from the press uh, about anything but the day's message. Uh, and, and ironically, if that will draw more attention to his tweets where he's got a huge advantage in the number of followers he's got, but it means that he's got to be more careful about what he posts. Mm. And, you know, can I give you a quick example? He gave the speech at Mount Rushmore to cry and taking down statues on Sunday. That was on a Friday on Sunday. Uh, Tammy Duckworth, a serious U.S. Senator from Illinois, who's under consideration to be Biden's running mate, is asked by Dana Bash on a competing network, do you think we ought to be consider taking down the statues of George Washington? She dodges for 141 words before saying, before slurring uh, the president, slandering President Trump. She said, well, uh, she doesn't answer that question, but says, you know, in the speech he gave on Friday, all he did was defend traitors, meaning Confederates. Well, he didn't say a single word about Confederates during his speech. But Dana Bash says, well, I agree with you on that, but let me read you. What is, what do you think? Should we consider taking down statues of George Washington? And Tammy Duckworth, for some inexplicable reason, says, yeah, we ought to consider it. So what does Donald Trump tweet about Sunday night, early Monday morning? He tweets about Bubba Wallace and defends the Confederate flag, where if he had gone straight at at, at Tammy Duckworth and said, what does Joe Biden think about Tammy Duckworth? Is he willing to consider somebody who says we ought to take down statues of George Washington. We ought to be open to that. That, that would have been a useful con- a controversy to have. Instead, he, ended, he, he, used his, he misused his tweet and got in a controversy that didn't do him any good. Yeah, I hear you saying discipline. That's what that's what I hear from that answer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I think um, we should revisit this in about 50 days. If you were up for it, I'm up for it. But I think we ought to open this by having you come on with the MC Hammer. Uh, <laughs> and we can all imagine you in gold pants dancing onto uh, the stage. Let me see what I can do about the copyright on that. Uh, Carl, terrific chatting with you. A hundred days, give or take, away from what is sure to be a campaign unlike any other. Thanks, Carl. Thank you, sir. You bet. Carl Rove. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. 
The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.